Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we continue our coverage on the war in the Ukraine. And on this St. Patrick's Day, we discuss some Irish history and the Irish and race. Our guest is Ireland-based Maggie Ronane, a trade unionist and lecturer at the National University of Ireland in Galway. For our weekly Earth Watch, we discuss the dangers of genetically modified foods, uh, today focusing on genetically modified salmon. Our guest is J.D. Hansen, Policy Director for the Center for Food Safety. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandiri. A Russian airstrike hit a theater in the besieged southern port Ukrainian city of Mariupol, where hundreds of people were sheltering. Ukrainian officials said the building withstood the impact, but the entrance was blocked by rubble, and that some people had escaped, others were being rescued. It wasn't yet known if there were any deaths or injuries. Images shown the building had the world children written on in large letters to avert such an attack. The governor of the northern Ukrainian city of Chernihiv said it had has experienced colossal losses and destruction from Russian artillery and airstrikes. The official said the bodies of 53 people had arrived at morgues over the past 24 hours. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky followed his address yesterday to a joint session of the U.S. Congress with a video address to Germans' parliament, the Bundestag. He sharply criticized Germany accusing it of putting its economy before his country's security in the run-up to the Russian invasion. We are fighting for our lives and for our freedom. It is not the Berlin Wall. It is the wall between having freedom and not having freedom in Europe. With every bomb and every decision not made that could have helped us, this wall is getting bigger. We asked about what Ukraine can do to join NATO and getting security guarantees, and the answer we received is that it isn't on the table. Now you question whether Ukraine should join the EU. Yes, for some this is politics, but for us it is souls for the new wall. Ukraine's presidential office said Russian forces freed the mayor of the city of Melitopol in exchange for nine captured Russian soldiers. President Biden will speak tomorrow with Chinese President Xi Jinping. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said they'll discuss Russia's war against Ukraine and the ongoing economic competition between China and the U.S. President Biden yesterday for the first time called Russian President Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Biden also announced that the U.S. is sending an additional $800 million in military assistance, including anti-aircraft and anti-armor weapons and drones. Russian President Vladimir Putin, meantime, lashed out at what he called scum and traitors, signaling an even harsher crackdown on domestic opposition to the war. Julia Chapman reports. Journalists and individuals alike are now bound by new legislation in Russia aimed at controlling the narrative over Ukraine. Russian officials call their action a special military operation. No other term is considered acceptable. 
Criminal cases have now been opened against at least three Russians under the new law. All of them are accused of spreading fake news about the military on social media. The Russian Investigative Committee says their homes have been searched and witnesses are being questioned. At least one of the three is thought to have already fled the country, along with thousands of other Russians fearing for their safety and futures. Julia Chapman, Moscow. The World Health Organization says reported coronavirus cases are on the rise again, just as much of the world is acting as if the virus is in the rearview mirror. WHO Director General Dr. Tedros Adhanom said the new figures mark a reversal after a month of declining cases. After several weeks of declines, reported cases of COVID-19 are once again increasing globally, especially in parts of Asia. These increases are occurring despite reductions in testing in some countries, which means the cases we're seeing are just the tip of the iceberg. The WHO said there was an 8% week-over-week increase in recorded coronavirus cases. A Southern California man died nearly two years ago as he screamed, I can't breathe, while multiple officers restrained him as they tried to take a blood sample. California Highway Patrol officers took 38-year-old Edward Bronstein into custody following a traffic stop. He died less than two months before George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police, as he too repeatedly told them he couldn't breathe. A nearly 18-minute video taken by a CHP sergeant was released this week after a judge in a federal lawsuit ordered its release. Bronstein's family has filed a federal lawsuit against the officers alleging excessive force and a violation of civil rights. The family also wants the officers criminally charged by the Los Angeles County District Attorney. A judge in Honduras has ruled that former President Juan Orlando Hernandez should be extradited to the U.S. to face drug trafficking and weapons charges. The decision can be appealed. Federal prosecutors have accused him of funding his political rise with profits from drug traffickers in exchange for protecting their shipments. He has denied any wrongdoing. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, as you heard in our news headline. Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed the U.S. Congress yesterday in which he again called for a request to close the skies. Um, President uh, Biden then announced new shipments of anti-aircraft and anti-armor systems, small arms and ammunition along with drones. Uh, And he also uh, announced an additional 800 million uh, dollars in uh, military aid uh, to the Ukraine. Keep in mind that just one of the uh, missiles uh, used in the Ukraine uh, sent by the United States costs about somewhere between 80000 and and $100,000, so quite a bit of money. Uh, there, this as the world continues to watch the horror of the bombardment in the Ukraine, um, drawing uh, heavy uh, damage, civilian loss of life and injuries, as well as those in the military on both sides, on uh, Russia and the Ukraine. Now, 
in terms of um, what's happening at the United Nations, uh, Russia has drafted a Security uh, Council uh, resolution, and the UN Security Council is to vote on it on Friday. And the resolution um, quotes, and I'll read a quote from the resolution, demands that civilians, including humanitarian personnel and persons in vulnerable situations, including women and children, are fully protected. The Russian drafted resolution also calls for safe and unhindered aid access and for the safe passage of people out of the Ukraine. Now, Russia put this forward after France and Mexico uh, withdrew uh, their own push for a humanitarian uh, situation, a resolution to the humanitarian crisis, a growing humanitarian crisis. Um, However, the United States and Western allies have said that they will veto this resolution. They will not vote for it because they said the resolution does not include Russia's accountability uh, for the invasion. So there you have it. A lot of angst about the loss of life there, but, you know, some way, somehow a refusal uh, to vote for something that would offer humanitarian aid and safe and unhindered uh, access for safe passage for people uh, fleeing the Ukraine. Uh, also, uh, in the when uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky addressed the U.S. Congress, he made some reference to uh, Martin Luther King in what to many was a kind of an odd way, because Martin Luther King, as we know, was famously anti-war, um, and what the Ukrainian president said was, "quote." I have a dream. I can say I have a need, a need to protect our sky. He's referring to a no-fly zone and all experts are saying that to establish a no-fly zone would basically mean the United States going into open war with uh, Russia. Now, also in an interview with NBC News, Zelensky also said that he thinks that World War II, World War III has already started. He said this in an interview on Wednesday with NBC uh, News. And it, quote to quote him, he says, nobody knows whether it may have already started and what is the possibility of this war if Ukraine will fall in case Ukraine will. He also put it in a context of a East-West conflict, but more of a civilization versus not civilization context. He, he further emphasized that civilian, the whole civilization is at stake. The whole civilization is at stake. So uh, there you have it. Uh, just a, a few updates there on what's happening with the war. And I'd like to share a few clips with you before we introduce our guest. One is on Ukrainian President Zelensky um, making his case on, you know, how negotiations are, are going and, and on the war. And that's followed 
followed by a clip we played earlier this week by an Irish uh, member of parliament, the Irish parliament, uh, Claire Daly, who is against the U.S., uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but also says that there is a, a double standard. Let's hear those clips and then we'll go to our guest. It's been very clear he's worried about provocations that could trigger World War III. Do you understand his concern there, and do you agree that it wouldn't take much to end up in World War III? Well, nobody knows whether it may have already started, and what is the possibility of uh, this war if uh, Ukraine will fall in case Ukraine will fall. It's very hard to say. And we've seen this 80 years ago when the Second World War has started. And there were similar tragedies in the history. Nobody would be able to predict when the full-scale war would start and how it will end and who will end, put an end to that. In this case, we have the, the whole civilization at stake and let us go now to hear from Claire Daly. The lives of innocent civilians are sacrificed in the wars of their masters. Yes, in Ukraine, but not only. Since the last plenary, tens of thousands of Afghani citizens have been forced to flee in search of food and safety. Five million children face famine, an agonizing and painful death, a 500% increase in child marriages and children being sold just so they can survive, and not a mention of it, not here, not anywhere. No wall-to-wall -wall TV coverage, no emergency humanitarian response, no special plenaries, not even a mention in this plenary, no Afghani delegations and no statements. My God, they must be wondering what makes their humanitarian crisis so unimportant? Is it the colour of their skin? Is it that they're not white? They're not European? That their problems come from a US gun or a US invasion? Is it that the decision to rob their country's wealth was taken by a despotic US president rather than a Russian one? Because, my God, all wars are evil and all victims deserve support. And until we get on that page, we have no credibility whatsoever. All wars are evil. And uh, that was um, Claire Daly, who is an MEP, a member of parliament in Ireland. And on this St. Patrick's Day, uh, we thought it would be good to uh, focus a little bit on how um, Europe is seeing the war, but uh, Ireland in particular, that has had a history of neutrality. And I'd like to welcome our guest, Maggie Ronane, who is a lecturer at the National University of Ireland, Galway. She is a trade unionist, and she's also a member of the Global Women's Strike. Uh, Maggie Ronane, welcome back. It's been a while. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. Well, Maggie, there are a few things I'd like to speak with you about, uh, but let us just start then with the flat, some controversy that emerged um, when two um, Irish MEPs, uh, Mike Wallace and, and Claire Daly, um, voted against the EU resolution on the Ukraine. Um, tell us what you know about why they took that vote. Yeah, so um, Claire Daly is actually um, a member of the European Parliament. She has been a member of the Irish Parliament in the past and 
the what's happening has been called out there as well, and I can say a bit more about that. Um, but she was actually there in that clip talking. She was speaking at the European Parliament and and calling them out on the double standards of you know, massive military aid to Ukraine, wall-to-wall debates about it and so on, uh, when, you know, there's no mention of the devastation being suffered by the Afghan the Afghan people now, um, or, or, or many others in many other wars uh, around the world. Um, and what happened, uh, partly this, the debate and how she was speaking took place in the context of the EU passing a resolution um, on Ukraine, which, of course, like the ones you just mentioned, you know, contain condemnation of the war, calls for immediate ceasefire, uh, and so on. Uh, but she and her colleague, Nick Wallace, and some others in their group um, ended up having to vote against this um, and then got accused of being pro-war and pro-Putin and so on, which is completely untrue. And they have been, you know, anti-war activists for many years um, but they had to vote against it because it contained, the EU resolution contained a number of clauses that were, you know, really problematic, really disgraceful, and uh, which affect these clauses effectively would be an excuse for the increased militarization of Europe um, and increased military spending in Europe, including, you know, massive amounts of weaponry to Ukraine. Um, and what... Uh, Claire and, and Nick Wallace said was that this uh, will just lead to escalation and it will mean more war. It could potentially be a catastrophic major war in which millions could be killed. Um, and the military spending, you know, the proposal was for a huge increase in that, which, as we know, Margaret, you know, is going to mean money taken away from uh, the poorest in society, which is always women and children. Um, there was another clause in the resolution uh, that talked, uh, you know, they, they used it as a convenient excuse to introduce a clause that talked about a deal for European countries to be able to buy fracked gas from the U.S., which, of course, would mean devastation to communities and the environment in the U.S. and globally. So um, they, you know, they came in for um, a lot of criticism because it was, it was portrayed that they were just, voting, you know, in favor of war and so on, when it was completely um, not, not the case. Um, and there's been a, a big debate about uh, the war here in Ireland. Uh, thankfully, they did get to write an opinion piece to set out their position to answer uh, these criticisms. Um, but similarly, we have seen double standards in, in Ireland where, um, you know, the, the Irish government has been called out in the Irish parliament as well for, you know, on the one hand, immediately condemning Russia, um, slapping sanctions on Russia and so on, but at the same time, Palestine in particular was mentioned um, that they won't condemn Israel for the occupation of Palestine, apartheid, and all of the other crimes that the Israeli state has committed. They won't even consider sanctions, uh, let alone boycotts. Um, so, you know, those double standards have been highlighted here as well. Of course, there's massive opposition uh, to the war in Ukraine here, and there has been huge opposition to many of their wars, the wars in the Middle East and, and Africa as well. Um, but the double standards have also seemed to be applying to, for example, the, the treatment of refugees, because quite rightfully, the refugees from Ukraine are coming here now, and they're going to be coming in large numbers to Ireland, and they're being given all the supports they need, housing, food, 
um, all of that, you know, the right to work immediately, the right to get access to the welfare benefits here um, in, in universities like my university being offered uh, tuition, just like Irish students and so on. Um, and of course, they should have all of that. But refugees fleeing from war and other devastation, you know, asylum seekers who are mostly people of colour, as you know, fleeing war and other devastation in Africa and the Middle East, they should have access and should have had access to all of this as well. But instead, there's been shameful treatment by the Irish state of asylum seekers uh, from those places over many years. Um, you know, being put into these hostels, separated from the rest of the community, not allowed to work, existing on tiny amounts of money, um, in really poor, terrible conditions. Now, finally, asylum seekers and their supporters, part of a, a great movement over a long number of years, have won a recent amnesty where they will be given papers. They, they're allowed to apply for residency now. Um, it's a, it's a one-off, um, a kind of program, um, and it's a brilliant victory, but they had to fight for that for years. So there, there is this double standard that is, that is there. Um, and you mentioned Irish neutrality uh, as well. So this is really important to us here in, in Ireland. Uh, obviously, we are all against what has happened in Ukraine as we were against all of the other wars, uh, but it is military neutrality, and it's enshrined in the Irish constitution. Um, and what we're seeing now with the increased militarization in Europe, the build-up by NATO and so on, is that you're getting some on the right wing, including some in government, calling for Ireland to join NATO and for increased military spending here, despite that neutrality. Which really goes back, that neutrality goes back to what Irish people suffered under colonial occupation and empire. So we know the death and the devastation, the famine, you know, that war and occupation bring. Um, and thankfully, the polls are showing that the surveys and opinion polls are showing that uh, the Irish public, you know, the majority wants to keep neutrality. They don't uh, want to join NATO or they don't want to be, you know, going organizing uh, for increased military spending and so on. But at the same time, you know, there's this kind of erosion of us. Um, and Claire and, and her colleagues have, have spoken to this in, in the past as well and have fought against us and have actually been on uh, many of the protests that many of us have been on to to defend that neutrality and against wars all over the world. You know, as she says, all victims of war deserve support. Our guest is Maggie Ronane, who is a lecturer at the National University of Ireland-Galway. She's also a trade unionist and a women's rights activist. So, Maggie, you actually uh, dealt with a lot of the, you answered a lot of the questions, actually, that I was going to ask you, including about um, the neutrality of Ireland. And these MPs, uh, Claire Daly, and, and thank you for clarifying that she is a member of the European uh, Parliament. We will make that correction, not the Irish Parliament. Claire Daly is a member of the European uh, Parliament that she and uh, Mike Wallace also have consistently, according to their statement, opposed the militarization of the EU, the expansion of, of NATO, and what they say is the erosion of Ireland's uh, 
uh, Ireland's neutrality um, within EU common defense structures. And uh, Maggie, I do want to move on now. It is St. Patrick's Day, but I imagine, I mean, a a lot of people are watching with some alarm on on the one hand, um, demanding that Russia stop its aggression, Russia pull out of of the Ukraine and and the the really unnecessary loss of life, because you heard uh, Zelensky saying just a few days ago that uh, about he doesn't see the Ukraine joining NATO. And of course, had that been statement been made earlier, we may not be seeing the devastation that we're seeing now. So we've spent quite some time this week unpacking the geopolitical implications of all of this. So we'll have to see how all of that goes. But uh, Maggie, time is, is going by. And today in the United States, uh, St. Patrick's Day is being uh, marked, is being recognized. And I imagine it is in Ireland as well. Uh, before we discuss that a bit, though, and a bit about the Irish history here in the U.S., and I just read something recently about the Irish and the Mexican-American War, which was something I didn't know. Very interesting. I'd like to play a clip from um, Joy DeGruy on the whole issue of race and whiteness. Let's go to that clip now. What's important to note here is that Europeans enslaved other Europeans. There's a book called How the Irish Became White because they were not perceived to be on the same level along with Scottish folks. A lot of folks, they were considered subhuman. So we have to ask the questions, were there white people in antiquity? People with light skin certainly existed well before our own times, but did anyone think they were white or that their character related to their color? No, for neither the idea of race nor the idea of white people had been invented. And people's skin color did not carry useful meaning. Not until the 18th century did an obsession with whiteness flourish with the German invention of the notion of Caucasian beauty. This theory made Northern Europeans into Saxons, Anglo-Saxons, and Teutons envisioned as uniquely handsome and natural rulers. Also conspicuously missing from current libraries is a long history of white slavery dating back to the early medieval period, where Anglo-Saxon and Old Norse literature depicts, listen carefully, the Welsh person, a slave, as drunken, sexually aggressive, and the notion that Welsh and Celts generally were dark, had hair and skin darkened by exposure to the sun, circulated as a typical coloring of slaves. Now you can see how this easily turned into African slavery. Slaves then appear, these are Europeans, slaves appear as dirty, suntanned people with ugly, quarrelsome, lazy, gossipy, and smarmy children. History's most famous British slave was Patrick, Ireland's patron saint. And of course, St. Patrick's Day, uh, Maggie, that's the day of that patron saint. And we do know some of the history of Ireland where Cromwell basically was doing ethnic cleansing of the Irish. I'm from Barbados. A lot of those Irish people who were impoverished, homeless, etc., cetera, uh, were sent to Barbados where they worked as indentured uh, servants, etc. cetera. Uh, a number of Irish people also clearly immigrated uh, to the 
the United States. But um, tell us a little bit about um, who was St. Patrick and this whole business about um, race and, and the Irish. When they first came to the United States, the United States, of course, you can't see anything outside of, of race um, becoming more aware of their whiteness and the, the power that then comes with that whiteness over other people who are not white, Maggie. Early medieval period slavery was mentioned there um, in, in the clip that you played. And in fact, St. Patrick himself was a slave. Um, he was not Irish. Um, he was either Welsh or Scottish. There isn't all that certainty, but it seems that he was a Romanized Britain, you know, because Britain was part of the Roman Empire. Um, and he was kidnapped. Uh, by raiders, um, led by a man called Nile of the Nine Hostages. And uh, he was taken to Ireland, and he served as a slave for six years in Ireland. And there was slavery in early medieval Irish society. It was the very lowest class. They had no rights. They were usually captives from battles between the kingdoms or from the raids of the Irish overseas, as happened to, to Patrick. Um, and so he, he did that time as a slave and um, then managed to escape uh, and then decided to return um, as a Christian bishop um, and, and, you know, and to, to spread the word of, of, of Christianity. Uh, but that idea, that, that reality that there was slavery in early medieval Ireland um, is really hidden. And it's due to nationalism, Margaret, you know, that... Um, nationalism, Irish nationalism, like all other nationalisms, has set up these golden ages and these great treasures in the past that show, you know, the achievements of the Irish nation in the past and so on. Uh, and it's really a cleaned up version of history in which the inequalities and the hierarchies and the devastation that happened to people and also people's struggles against that are really hidden. Um, uh, but that's what connects most people internationally. It's those struggles. So you need more of this truth, you know, to, to, to come out. Um, so I remember learning as a student about uh, the early medieval period, and we learned all about the high kings and the kings and the different kingdoms and those of higher status, but we never heard much at all about slavery in, in early medieval Ireland. Similarly, though, the history of both what happened to people, you know, under colonialism and empire in Ireland, but then, um, you know, what happened when they went, uh, they fled as immigrants uh, to the United States. You know, that's, there are sanitized versions, cleaned up versions of that that are presented as well, and a lot is left out, including uh, the struggle history of Irish people with uh, people of color, with slaves and former slaves, such as you mentioned in Barbados, you know, they took part in rebellions together, the Irish indentured servants and, uh, and the slaves. Um, and, you know, there was, there was black leadership of those rebellions. Um, but this is not what's commonly taught in the classrooms, and you don't uh, hear about it that commonly. Um, so, you know, I suppose, you know, huge numbers of Irish people did immigrate and fled, um, you know, the, the, the colonialism um, and... Uh, empire um, that they faced in, in this country. Um, and Irish people were racialized as part of um, English and later British colonialism and empire. Um, you know, they, they were, you know, they, they, these, these um, scientists and scholars and colonial officials had these terrible 
hierarchies in which they place indigenous peoples down at the bottom of the so-called developmental scale. Uh, and they put Irish people down there too. And colonial commentators, you know, called Irish people lazy and stupid and dirty and all of those things that have been applied to colonized peoples all over the world. And when, you know, Irish people then emigrated um, in large numbers, or particularly during uh, the period of the devastating Great Famine in Ireland, which was caused by British colonialist policies in the middle of the 19th century, you know, they initially were treated in a racist way, you know, when they arrived in countries like the US and Australia. But shamefully, many Irish immigrants, you know, within a generation or so, um, saw that, you know, the power lay with those white people in authority, and they went over to the side of racism, um, identified as white, and, and opposed and attacked other immigrants who were people of color and African-American people, descendants uh, of slaves. And it's just a disgraceful, shameful history, and it's, it's not what our heritage is as, as a colonized uh, people. Um, and I heard the mention in the clip there of the book How the Irish Became White, and this is was part of this whole process. But the story you mentioned from you know from uh, you know from recent history from Mexico, there's a fabulous example uh, that has recently come out from the Mexican American War of a group of Irish people actually deciding to stick with their the true heritage, which is to act with the oppressed and colonized and exploited people of the world in their struggle for justice. And it was this this uh, battalion of U.S. soldiers, but they weren't U.S., they were, they were Irish soldiers uh, who had emigrated, fled the Great Famine, um, and then got caught up in the Mexican-American War from 1846 to 48, uh, which was basically, as I understand it, a U.S. invasion and land grab. And they were conscripts in the U.S. cavalry, uh, they got to Mexico and they saw what they were being made to do. They saw the people that they were supposed to do it to. And they thought, these people are like us. They're rural, they're poor, indigenous people. They, they, you know, they are being oppressed. And what the soldiers did was they, you know, basically took off their uniforms and changed sides uh, and fought for the Mexican side um, in the war. And, you know, many of them gave their lives to that. They, they were 50 of them that were hanged by the U.S. Army. Uh, for desertion and others were flogged uh, and branded. But it, it's, it's, it's a great example of, you know, what's sometimes called this hidden history of actually people acting together, you know, inter- internationally and, you know, those Irish people knowing that their, their the true Irish heritage is to be with and act with, you know, colonized peoples of the world and exploited peoples of the world uh, and join with their, with their struggle. So, as I said already, just so much more of this truth needs to come out. Absolutely, and I'm afraid, uh, Maggie, we have uh, run out of time here, but uh, the story you just referred to was actually written up in uh, Mexico Solidarity uh, Bulletin, and and one of the uh, editors of that uh, bulletin, um, Bruce Hobson, we hope to have him on, uh, hopefully sometime next week, but the those fighters, the uh, I Irish-American fighters that you mentioned in Mexico were called the San Patricios, and um, just and people refer to them as white people of color. Uh, so there you have it, uh, Maggie. This could be a full-hour discussion, but we are out of time. We have to go on to our weekly Earth Watch. I imagine St. Patrick's Day—it's a big holiday there, Maggie. Just very quickly. <laughs> 
<laughs> a lot of oh, Guinness yeah, and uh, hanging out. Right. There'll be a lot of that going on. Yeah, there will. Um, but, you know, often very political as well. And there'll be several floats on the parade, which will be, you know, talking about the war in Ukraine and, you know, other global political issues as well. So it can be quite a political event as well as a big celebration and big tourist event here. Right. We are going to have to leave it there. Maggie Ronane, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, we are going to take a station break, and when we return, we'll go to our weekly Earth Watch. You know, a lot of controversy around genetically modified foods. We're now hearing about genetically modified trees, uh, now genetically modified salmon. Uh, what's going on? Meanwhile, you have multinational corporations like Bayer, who bought over uh, Monsanto, and many others that are really pushing um, genetically modified modified seeds and this whole move in many places around the world. We'll be discussing all of that as part of our weekly Earth Watch. Stay with us. We'll be right back. some Irish music as we uh, mark uh, St. Patrick's Day here on Sojourner Truth. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and that music was uh, from Sense of Kiva. So you can check out our website at sotrueradio.org. And if you're a member of Facebook, like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at sotrueradio. We're heard uh, nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Long Island, in the state of New York. Long Island, in the state of New York. And internationally, we'll give a shout out to our SoundCloud uh, listeners in Ireland. And now we are going to turn to our weekly Earth What. And out of the gate, I'd like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. They partner with us for both our weekly Earth Minute as well as our weekly Earth Watch. Now, genetically modified foods are foods derived from organisms whose genetic material, DNA, has been modified in a way that just isn't natural. It isn't part of nature. Uh, it is, they introduce a gene, for example, from a different organism. Now, most available uh, genetically modified foods are uh, stem from plants. And as I said earlier, you have multinational corporations that are pushing GM crops, GM food, GM trees, GM fish, and they're up against environmentalists who are outright opposed to them or question the need uh, for them. And it remains to be seen if we're going to be seeing a future where uh, so much of our food derived from genetically modified organisms or animals uh, in on the market. And a lot of us don't even know what genetically modified foods we're eating. Um, in California, for example, Monsanto and DuPont, Monsanto now bought over by 
White Bear, along with large supermarket brands, Kraft, Heinz, Sara Lee, PepsiCo. They spent millions of dollars to oppose California's GMO labeling law. Um, 53% of the state voters opposed for it. 47% were in favor of label of the labeling. Now, in the, the polling, actually, those in favor of the labeling was ahead. But then, uh, just close to the last minute, you have these huge multinational corporations pouring in millions of dollars uh, to uh, defeat that. Uh, move. What I'd like to do now to discuss uh, more of uh, all of this, in particular um, on the uh, genetically modified salmon, I'd like to welcome J.D. Hansen, Policy Director for the Center for Food Safety. His expertise includes emerging technology issues are related to nanotechnology, synthetic biology, animal clothes, cloning, animal genetic engineering, and gene editing. Um, J.D. Hansen, welcome. Tell us a bit then about the the sequence of this idea of genetically modified uh, salmon. There was a 2021 U.S. District Court in uh, the Northern District of California um, who agreed with the ruling that the FDA they ignored basically the serious environmental consequences of approving genetically modified uh, salmon. Uh, tell us how all of that came about and what, what has happened since with genetically modified salmon. Well, we, we sued the uh, uh, Food and Drug Administration, uh, arguing that they had done a lousy job of doing the environmental assessment, a totally inadequate job of doing the endangered species assessment, and they're using the new animal drug law as a way of, of approving this animal was illegal. The judge agreed with us on two of those three. The judge said that the FDA has a right to use whatever way it wants to to regulate the animals so that we didn't win the new animal drug is a bad idea. But we did win. The court ordered the Food and Drug Administration to go back and redo its endangered species assessment. Now, this is a Atlantic salmon, which is an endangered animal. And so we're going to be potentially letting loose into the environment a genetically engineered animal that could breed with the wild endangered Atlantic salmon. And they did a totally inadequate job of reviewing that. Didn't even talk to the parts of the government they're supposed to talk to. And then their environmental assessment as a whole was inadequate. Now, more than a year later, we don't know if the FDA has done anything or not. And so we we asked through freedom of information request and did not get an answer. So now we're having to sue the FDA to, to find out whether or not they're following the judge's order. The original suit, I understand, was filed in 2016 by the Kinalt Indigenous Native American tribe in Washington state. And they sued along with environmental and fishing organizations in terms of approving the safety of genetically modified salmon. So what, what's the problem? I mean, why, why is there an outcry against uh, genetically modified salmon? 
Well, one, because raising genetically modified salmon near where wild salmon breed, that makes it dangerous environmentally. Two, their assessments of things like whether this new genetic engineered salmon will cause people to have more allergic reactions. They tested all of six fish of the kind that they want us to eat. Six sterile fish. Uh, they say it's, we're only going to eat sterile fish, they say. But they have to have fertile fish to breed them. And the FDA said the six fertile fish they tested caused allergic reactions, were more likely to cause allergic reactions, so you couldn't put them in the market. Well, the problem is they're assuming that these fertile fish will never get loose. They're now opening a big facility in Ohio to produce more of these fish. So we've asked the FDA to review the environmental risk of that new facility. There's a hormone that's created when you add other growth hormones in higher numbers called IGF-1. We know that causes cancer in humans, and the study the company did on that was inadequate too. But it's on the market in Canada already, and they're they're, they keep saying they're going to release it to the U.S. market, and so far we haven't found that their release actually has happened. Yeah, but you know, you talked about escaping into the wild. I mean, are they really going to be able to just contain um, this fish? I know, you know, going to the market of exposure, I do, I still do eat fish um, and always try to look for fish that are wild caught. Um, but it just seems to me as though there is a very real possibility, if it hasn't happened already, for this genetically engineered salmon to be out, you know, swimming around with, with other salmon. And I don't know what all of the implications of that uh, could be. And it means that when people also are thinking, well, they're getting uh, wild caught salmon, well, maybe not. Um, just your thoughts well, on this whole escaping risk. Well, right now, they're raising most of these fish in Canada. The problem is, where they're raising them in Canada, you've got wild Atlantic salmon. But the Canadians have allowed this, even, even though their own fisheries department has said there is a risk of escape. The main production facility, I've been there, it's 120 feet from the ocean, and it's uh, maybe 10 feet in elevation, but this is a part of Canada that gets really strong storms, including hurricanes. So they could be washed out. They're hiring local people, and all you need is uh, one of the guys that work there saying, oh, I need some salmon eggs to uh, catch other fish this weekend. I'll just take some of these, and you could have them hatch out. Yeah, and I mean, if, if they escape into the wild, into the ocean in Canada, I mean, the ocean is a huge place. That doesn't mean that it's going to stay in, quote-unquote, Canadian uh, waters. But J.D. Hansen, you have served in the National Marine Fisheries uh, Service. You started the Environmental Justice Program for the United Methodist Church. Uh, you've 
co-authored um, principles uh, for the oversight of genetic uh, biology and much more U.S. co-chair of the Nanotechnology Task Force of the Transatlantic uh, Consumers uh, Dialogue. You're a member of the Synthetic Biology Experts Committee for the Convention of Biological Diversity. You're a fellow of the Institute of Bi Biotechnology and the Human Future. So I know we're, we're very focused now on the the GM salmon, uh, but we have also been been covering with some people from the uh, Global Justice Ecology Project. They have a whole campaign uh, against GE trees, and there's a whole move now because of the threat of the quote unquote American uh, chestnut, meaning the chestnut in the United States, that it can be saved with uh, genetic uh, modification. And we have also uh, covered uh, a lot the work of uh, Monsanto, which has now been bought by Bayer of these uh, genetically engineered, genetically modified seeds uh, that sometimes the wind blows them just like the wild salmon, the genetically uh, modified salmon could escape. You've got these genetically modified seeds where the, the winds could blow them anywhere, including in areas where people are trying to grow organically. And then they're also very expensive and you have farmers in India um, getting into trouble and some of them even committing suicide because they can't afford to, you know, to, to buy this stuff, right? So I just wanted you to, 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 uh, to just talk a little bit about this whole global growth with, with Bayer. You have Dow and DuPont that has now been rebranded as Corteva. Uh, ChemChina, um, you know, BSAF. I mean, these are huge multinational uh, corporations. And all of this seems to be seeping into the seeds, the, 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 the corn, the food we eat, the trees, and, and now the salmon. Um, and a lot of it pegged as, well, this is one of the ways that we could feed the world and, and provide, you know, stop world hunger and, and all of that is how it's pegged. Just, you know, give us your thought as we are wrapping up here on this whole move towards uh, genetic engineering, genetically modified, uh, a lot of what we eat. The biggest crops are the grain crops that have been genetically engineered so that now Bayer can spray its poisonous chemicals more and more. California was the first place that had a man sue Monsanto and win, and he was a groundskeeper in the Benicia, California high school, but had gotten cancer from spraying so much Roundup. But what these companies really want to do is control everything that's in the ground and everything we eat. It's as much about control, and they're making it impossible for anybody else to effectively raise crops and raise livestock and raise fish. That's what it's about. And if the GE salmon, are, you know, ironically, is another one of these cases that all of the money for it is coming from one billionaire. Their stock officially it, it trades, but the reality is it's one one billionaire that wants to just play with this. And you know, some of the other big companies, it's one or two really rich people wanting to control so much of agriculture. Right, and and make tons of money uh, for themselves. 
And, you know, the the sad thing about it, I mean, I I can't stand Roundup. I mean, I have uh, respiratory uh, issues uh, related to the pollution, you know, living in inner city, um, East L.A., uh, close to a freeway. You've got all all of that uh, pollution. But then you also have all this spraying of Roundup and and other, uh, you know, weed control things. And and here you have, you know, families with children, moms are taking their kids to the park. You're having a picnic. You're sitting on the grass and and you have no idea that that stuff has been treated, you know, with Roundup or some other toxic uh, chemical. So, you know, this is something I really think we all need to be paying some attention to. But uh, J.D. Hansen, for people who want to find out a bit more about your work, about what is happening um, with this uh, genetically uh, modified salmon, uh, what should they do? Are there any websites or places they can go to become more informed about all of this? Go to your favorite search engine and search for centerforfoodsafety.org. And we've got uh, some wonderful communications people that put up all the stuff I do and all the stuff that other uh, staff do. Sign up for our action alerts. Right now we're working in California to try to get the Department of Pesticide Regulation to stop the approval of genetically modified mosquitoes to be released in the Central Valley. Go onto our website, uh, centerforfoodsafety.org, for salmon, fight the sale of salmon to fight the release of genetically modified mosquitoes and uh, the new pesticides that these companies are trying to use on GMO crops. Give that website again for folks who are trying to write it down here. Center for foodsafety.org. Well, uh, J.D. Hansen, thank you so very much uh, for your work. And we also want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partnered with them for our weekly Earth Watch and our weekly Earth Minute. But we are out of time, so we are going to have to leave it there. Uh, J.D., all the best. Thank you for joining us. And, and thank you and all the best to you and your listeners, too. All righty. Um, we're out of time. I'd like to thank all of uh, today's uh, guests. I'd like to uh, thank uh, Gary Baca, our engineer for today, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott. If you'd like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to pacificaradioarchives.org. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Sojourner Truth will be back tomorrow. Our weekly roundtable will be back. You don't want to miss that. Uh, Thank you for listening and you all please Please remember to stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.